Hey listeners, my name is Meg and I'm a volunteer here at Cellbox Church. I want to welcome you to our podcast. I love that the teaching here isn't about flashy gimmicks or hidden agendas. It's all about diving deep into thought-provoking, Jesus-centered discussions. We're glad you're here and we'd love to get to know you better. So please don't hesitate to reach out with your prayer requests, questions, and comments at our website, saltboxchurch.com. You all probably don't know this. I have the privilege of knowing this, but I got to... um build a wall with Daniel over here on uh, Friday. We were, he was more uh, eloquently than I was throwing sheetrock mud and putting up insulation. And I would say to you, as you look at a worship team like this, this is not a show. It's imperfect. We're imperfect people, but it comes from hearts that are genuinely positioned before King Jesus. Whew. I'm grateful for you guys. They're gone, but... <laughs> Oh, goodness. Okay, I am in. This is, uh, this is a beautiful topic. It's a challenging topic. Um, it, is, it is a little bit cumbersome. I'm referencing a lot of scriptures, so I put them up there. If you've got a paper Bible, that is great. You can begin. We're going to start in Acts 18, and we're going to look quickly at a few other sections. Um, you can begin to put your finger in a few of those sections or a bookmark if you'd like. If you're scrolling on Version or another Bible app, um, then you can probably find these passages more easily than those of us with paper Bibles. So uh, let's embark upon this together. And <clears throat> I think I'd say a couple of things. Um, most of you weren't in our living room in 2018 when we started Saltbox, but it was the fall of 2018. And there was about 18 or 20 people. And from the very beginning, we, that group of people voted and elected um, four elders. And then those elders issued a call to Abby and I um, to plant this church. And one of those elders was a female. And today, we're actually embarking upon reading about Priscilla in, uh, and her husband Aquila in uh, Acts 18. And then we're going to zoom out from there and take a look at Mary of Magdala. We're going to take a look at Phoebe in Romans. And then we're going to take a look at the most challenging of Paul's um, letters in regard to women in leadership, 1 Timothy 2, 12 commanding women to be silent in church, and we're going to take a look at how in the world do we sort all this out. Come on! Somebody say amen. Oh my goodness, how are we going to do this? We are going to open it up, God willing. Um, a quick disclaimer, a lot of my research um, and my beliefs have been formed by John Stott, N.T. Wright, Michelle Barnwell, Christopher Bryan, Willard Swartley, Michael Bird, and David Scholler. So these are not all of my original thoughts. I have leaned heavily on all of them. Okay, um, I've got to set the table before we start reading in Acts 18. You know how I do. I've got a little bit of a wind-up. So let me uh, just make some um, comments. This is very important. Um, I believe this is a, a statement of early church um, fathers and mothers, but they said, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Women in leadership is a non-essential. Okay, you have permission to see things differently. Read deep. But we do have women elders, women who speak and teach. There's a woman on our 
trustee team, there's a woman on our lead team. So you need to know where we approach this and how I approach this. And it is very important to me that you not uh, think that we are working to keep up with the culture. And I'm going to document to you why I'm not working to keep up with anyone today. The other thing that I would say to you as I, as a pastor, have made a decision years ago in the secrecy of my own heart that I refuse to be politically correct, okay? I work to be relevant and to make Bible truth applicable to your life and to mine. I will work to be gentle and sensitive and kind, but I refuse to be culturally current or PC just for the sake of being culturally current or politically correct, So I would say three things as we embark into these texts. My biblical theology and my relationship with Christ will always define my worldview. In other words, how I see the world, how we at Saltbox see the world, will always be defined by strong biblical theology and a relationship with Christ and not vice versa. There's a lot of people today who are inferring or they're taking their political worldview and then they're searching the scriptures to see if they can make their political or or, um, worldview fit into the Bible. No, 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 no. We start with the Bible. And then we filter and we make our our worldview from great biblical Jesus-centered theology. 10-4? Second thing, we will always do our best to preach Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen? Thirdly, this is very important. This is going to be new to some of you, and you're going to have to, you may have to sit in it and let it work into your hearts. But the Bible, in its original form, it's very important. The Bible, in its original form. Now, what were its original languages? Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic. It was originally written on parchments and scrolls, and and early church um, fathers and mothers pieced it together. So the Bible, in its original form, is the inspired word of God, and therefore the final authority in this life and the next. Now, my Bible is written in, I'm reading an NIV. What is it written in? English. So my Bible, at best, is a translation from the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic over some cultural bounds into English as we know it today. You follow? You have to be very careful because at times Christians will go, well, this is the inspired and the the unadulterated word of God. And I would say, yes, that's true. But the Bible in its original form is the infallible word of God and um, the only authority for life in this life and the next. It's very important, though, that you understand, and we will always do our best to dig back into the original form. There are translations that are out there that have gone from original languages to the Latin Vulgate to the New King James, or to the King James, to the New King James, to where we are today. Now, most good translations dig back into the original form and bypass these middle uh, people translations. But I would still say to you, at best, it is a human's understanding to interpret and extrapolate and to write scripture. 10-4? Okay. I'm like radioing with my son today. 10-4? We're, we're on a Paw Patrol all the time right now, so it's... 
Attention, Paw Patrol, Ryder needs us. That's where I am. He's three, almost four, and we're having a great time. Okay. <clears throat> the last thing I would say is, again, it's kind of a restatement, but I would say to you, I am not God, and I have no right to change my theology to fit my view or this world's view of life. I don't play God, and I will always, we will, as a church, will always do our best, albeit imperfectly, to represent the king and his kingdom through everything we do and everything we preach. Amen? Okay. If you're new here, if you're a non-believer, you're a doubter, an atheist, you're not even used to people saying amen, just kind of welcome to the journey and uh, feel free to be wherever you are in your process. Okay. Um, now, I actually want to put a couple things up on our screen, and this is, uh, this is how to read the Bible, and I think I probably should have used a better word. I probably should have said how to interpret the Bible. So if you, um, when I was working with Daniel Bennett on Friday, we wore tool belts. I think he looks more natural in a tool belt than I do, but nonetheless, we had tool belts, and I want to give you this morning a couple of tools for your tool belt in terms of how do you interpret or read the Bible, Okay. So we read the Bible to lead us into all truth, the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. That's John 1 if you want to cross-reference it. But we read the Bible for abiding relationship with Jesus, for personal transformation, for the glory of God, to know him and to be known by him and to glorify his name on the earth. I would say to you that the word of God is an invitation into deep relationship with him to know the very person and presence of God, the God who is love. The word of God is breathing and active and alive, and it is an invitation every day for you to step into it to know the heart, mind, will, and way of the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's why I'm always saying, get one in your Bible. Get one in your Bible. Open it. Even if you just read the psalm or the proverb, like open it and give opportunity every day for the King of kings and Lord of lords to speak to you divinely, intimately, and supernaturally through his word. Okay. So number one, we read the Bible to lead us into all truth. Number two, as you read the Bible, you have to ask, is this a universal truth for every member of the Bible? Christ, or is this a specific truth found within the Bible? Silly example. We could flip to the Old Testament. God says to King David, go to Hebron. Should we all pack up and go to Hebron? Specific truth? No, it's, it, it, is, uh, it is a larger, um, it is a specific truth, excuse me, for King David at that time, not necessarily applicable to us in 2024 America. Okay. <clears throat> Paul, I would say, was writing unique letters to unique churches with unique challenges and unique problems. And some, in fact, much of his letters will apply to all Christians and all churches. Others will be specific to that time and place. And we must sift and discern and attempt to know the difference. Okay, number one, read the Bible to lead us into all truth. Number two, as you read the Bible, you've got to ask, is this universal truth or is this specific truth? Number three, we've got to back up from that verse and chapter to look at the canon of Scripture or the Bible from Genesis to Revelation as a whole. Got it? Two thoughts on this. There's a danger in versification. Some of you are like, what is versification? Uh, do you know that these little numbers in your Bible didn't used to exist here? Those are called verses, and they were added hundreds and hundreds of years after the text was written. They're really helpful for those of us who are referencing, and I can say, turn with me to Acts 18. Can you imagine if you just had to open a scroll and, like, find your spot? We'd never get there, right? 
Okay, but the problem is imperfect people like you and I went in and put in the verses and the chapters and the way they broke things up sometimes lends itself where we can say, turn to this book, this chapter, and this verse, and you can actually plunk that little verse out of context and you can slap it on whatever situation you want and say this is God's will and way. And that becomes dangerous, okay? That is called uh, proof texting. So versification has some challenges you need to be aware of. And then proof texting is when you get to flip to a thing, you have a presupposition on what you want to do in your life or your marriage or your singleness or whatever you are, and you're going to flip and find a little something that supports what you always want to do, and then you're going to slap that on it, and you're going to say to everybody else, well, see, God said, and you just do what you want. If you know any of my story, I spent seven years of my life doing that. Proof texting. And I'm telling you, there's some wild stuff in this book. And if you want to plunk and pull little texts here and there, you can take the book of Judges and you can just about validate anything you want to do in this life. Okay? So when you read a text, you then have to back up from the text and you have to look at the chapter as a whole, the book as a whole, and then the canon of Scripture, the entirety of the Bible as a whole from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah? All right. Breathe deep. Ah, Lord Jesus, help us to read your word. Okay, let's start in Acts 18. I'm going to read the first couple of verses, and then we're going to skip down um, to verse 18. Okay, Acts 18. I'm reading out of the NIV this morning. After this, Paul left Athens, and he went to Corinth. Now, we know Paul stayed a year and a half in Corinth because of verse 10. I'm not going to read it this morning. But uh, 18 verse 10 tells you he stayed a year and a half there. There in Corinth, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. They probably got kicked out of Rome is what that text is saying. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were. So what did Aquila and Priscilla do? They sewed tents, okay? And because he was a tent maker, now who else sewed tents? Paul, that's right, he supported himself. So he stayed and worked with them, and every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, if he was there roughly a year and a half, and every Sabbath he preached in the synagogue, what was he doing the other six days? Probably making tents. So he's hanging out with Priscilla and Aquila. He's got a very close relationship with them. I could take you to a few different passages, but take my word for it at this point. Um, there's even some people, it is unvalidated in Scripture. I, don't, I, I carry this opinion maybe loosely, but some people would say that Priscilla wrote Hebrews. I'm not sure, but it's at least plausible because Hebrews is full of Pauline theology, and only someone who sat making tents with Paul for a year and a half could probably pen Hebrews. Okay, so it's at least, that's at least a plausible or a, a possibility. Okay, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, verse, skip down to verse 18. We preached through the other passages here a couple weeks ago. Verse 18, same chapter. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the believers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by who? And Aquila, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, notice who comes first. 
Priscilla. Now this is a shift. Who came first in the first text we read? Aquila, and now Priscilla comes first. Now, if I took you back, and we're not going to fully go through it, but if I took you back a few pages in Acts, what you would find is you would find that Dr. Luke, he penned the book of Acts. He was a Gentile, so he's a non-Jew. But he actually wrote about Paul, and he kept going, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Well, suddenly Saul, who became Paul, became preeminent. He was like the junior partner of the ministry team, if you will. And suddenly he became the senior partner. And from that moment on, Dr. Luke references them as Paul and Barnabas. So there's a shift. So I want you to see something. Dr. Luke is very detailed. He is not a casual or cavalier writer. So that he introduced us by Aquila and Priscilla and then shifted and changed it to Priscilla and Aquila, putting the woman first, is very interesting. And we can't fully deduce from that, but I think what you at least have to do is go, okay, either she was more significant in terms of politics or finances or leadership of the day, or she uh, was or had become uh, a more senior partner in her ability to preach and dissect the word of God. It's one or the other, because this is no accident that... Um, Dr. Luke would shift this and go Priscilla and Aquila. All right, let's keep going. So they sailed for Syria. He sailed for Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sancria because of a vow he had taken. This is another sermon for another time, but he is basically fasting. And we at Saltbox right now, what are we doing? Fasting. Now, he also fasted with a, a Nazarite vow from the Old Testament, shave his head, shave his beard. Um, but he, like us, is fasting. Let's keep going. Verse 19, they arrived at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is one of the major centers of the known world at this time, a Roman um, outpost. So they arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. Verse 20, when they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. So they're like, stay here, stay here. And he says, no, no, no. Verse 21, but as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. Now, who is he leaving in Ephesus? Priscilla and Aquila. Okay, verse 22. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem. That is not north up. That is like up to the high holy place of Jerusalem and the temple is what that means. But when he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and he was greeted by the church. And then he went down to Antioch, which was actually north. Doesn't make sense. But you're the high holy temple, the high holy city of Jerusalem. Everything goes down from there. So he went down from Jerusalem um, to Antioch. Okay. Uh, after uh, spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, this is the crux of what we're getting at today. Verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's like North Africa, Egypt area, came to Ephesus. Now, who's in Ephesus? Priscilla and Aquila. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. That's pretty high marks for Apollos, right? I mean, clearly, Dr. Luke likes the guy. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. So, powerful speaker? Yeah. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord. He knows what he's doing, and he taught about Jesus accurately. So, high marks from Dr. Luke? 100%. Though, this is important, he only knew the baptism of John. Now, who's John? 
John the Baptist, or the literal translation would be John the Dunker. Um, so John is, I know that sounds funny, but that's the literal, the literal there, um, in the original form. Um, so John uh, called people to what? Anybody know? Repentance. So Apollos has a grasp on who Jesus is. He has a grasp on scriptural. He's got um, good theology, but only so far as the baptism of John, which is the baptism of repentance, which is only the first part of the story. Because you repent, and then after you repent, you actually appropriate or take unto yourself the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the ascension of Christ. So he really only has this pretty narrow slice of the way. You follow me? So he's really, and in all intents and purposes, he's only preaching a partial gospel of a pre-resurrected Jesus. But they are really like commending him, like they really like him. So let's see what happens. Verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. I actually really like Apollos. When Priscilla and Aquila, notice the word order again there, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Acacia, the believers encouraged him and he wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who uh, who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, so Apollos is teaching. He's got a narrow slice, if you will, of the, of the whole resurrected, finished work of, of Christ's gospel. But he's, he's preaching powerfully. They love him. Priscilla and Aquila hear him. Priscilla and Aquila have been hanging out with the Apostle Paul, the probably world's greatest ever uh, theologian, who understands the old and the new. And his highest, probably, epistle, the epistle to the Romans, um, he articulated all of this. So Priscilla and Aquila take in Apollos, and what do they do? We are going to teach you because you don't get it. And they do it quietly. They don't do it publicly. They don't embarrass him. But who teaches Apollos? Priscilla, whose name is listed first, and Aquila. So they take him in and they teach him. Now, immediately, if you're steeped in, in Bible or Word or whatever, you might be thinking of 1 Timothy 2.12. Let's read it and fully experience the tension of this moment. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He's a young pastor, almost assuredly pastoring a church in Ephesus at the time. He's probably not on the scene yet. But 1 Timothy 2, verse 12. Are you ready? I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Is the great Paul contradicting himself? So I think what you have to begin to do is feel the tension. And it's the tension that I think the American church and the church even around the world has felt. And one of the things I love about Jesus is he doesn't always solve every hurdle and problem. And he leaves some things, and I just don't think he's afraid of a little bit of messiness. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Let's open this a little bit further. 
We're going to come back to this text because there's more here, but I want to give you a full picture. So here's what I'm going to do. Back to how do you read the Bible? I am looking at Priscilla being used to teach Apollos. Now, she was with her husband Aquila, so Priscilla and Aquila, but she's listed first. She teaches Apollos. So I'm stepping back from that verse. I'm looking at the whole Bible. I'm going to go to my my 1 Timothy 2.12 and go, hang on a second. He told Timothy that he doesn't let a woman teach a man, but I'm reading in Acts that it seems like a woman and her husband taught a man. So how do I sort this out? So again, I'm going to take one bigger step back into the canon of Scripture, and we're going to take a quick look at Mary of Magdala, of um, Phoebe, and then we're going to come back to a person named Phoebe, a woman named Phoebe, leader named Phoebe, and then we're going to come back to 1 Timothy 2.12. You ready? Okay, here we go. Hang with me. If this is a lot, you're like, oh my gosh, where's this guy going? Hang on. This is good. This is good news. But it's really important that we don't just make cavalier decisions and go, we're doing it because society's doing it. No, 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 no. We're doing it only if Jesus is doing it. You got it? Okay, so go with me to John 20, verses 17 and 18. This was one of the apostles, a guy named John, John the Beloved. John is an amazing book, probably one of my favorites. But John 20, verses 17 and 18. Again, I'm reading out of the NIV. Now, this is Jesus post-resurrection. You can cross-check it all if you like. Jesus post-resurrection, and he appears not to one of the 11 apostles. Judas has committed suicide at this moment, but he appears not to one of the 11 apostles, but instead he appears to Mary of Magdala, who at least possibly, you can't say assuredly, but possibly was a former prostitute. Okay, so here we go. He appears to her, and this is what he said. This is, by the way, the first person he appears to. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. She's trying to, like, hold on to him. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Now, pause. What is preaching the gospel? sharing the good news of the resurrection of Jesus, okay? So if Jesus first appears to Mary, not one of the 11, and he says, go tell who? My brothers, the 11 apostles, that I am resurrected. I am no longer dead, but I am Alive. In other words, he is saying to her, go and preach the good news of the risen Christ Jesus to my 11 apostles who abandoned me. Let me show you. Cross-reference, Mark 14, 50. Matthew, Mark. I know this is a lot. Hang with me. Mark 14, 50. I hear the pages turning. I'm going to pause a minute. Some of you are scrolling, some of you are flipping. Matthew, Mark, Mark was one of the, uh, John Mark probably wrote the book of Mark. It was probably written by the firsthand testimony of the apostle Peter. But Mark 14, verse 50, this is in the very garden of Gethsemane. And here's what it says. Then everyone, some translations say, then all the apostles deserted him and fled. So who hung with Jesus? Zero, no one of the apostles left. Now, I'm flipping over to Mark 50, or excuse me, Mark 14, forgive me, Mark 14, nope, Mark 15, verses 40 and 41. Some of you were ahead of me, well done. 
Mark 15, verse 40 and 41. This is why Jesus is hanging on the cross. Now, where are the apostles? They are gone. They are not here. They have run away in most likely fear. Verse 40 of, uh, of Mark 15 says, Some women were there watching from a distance. Among them was Mary of Magdala, or Mary of Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up to, with him to Jerusalem were also there. So, who abandoned Jesus, just for clarity? The men. And who stayed? The women. I've, heard, I've read commentators go, well, it's because there was less penalty on women. Yeah, right. The guys got scared and bailed out and the women stayed. Just the way it is. That's what the word says. That's not Michael's opinion. That is what the word says. Okay, so you have Mary of Magdala. Jesus appears to her first. He didn't appear to John the Beloved. He didn't appear to Apostle Peter. He didn't appear to these other guys that he loved and journeyed with. No, no, no. They had abandoned him. It is amazing to me that Jesus, I don't know if he honored. There's mystery here that I can't sort out. But he appeared first to Mary of Magdala, perhaps the former prostitute, appears to her in the garden and says, Go and preach Jesus to the 11 apostles and tell them I'm no longer dead, but I'm alive. And then more than that, he, get, he says, go, um, and I love, let's just even read this, it's so good. John chapter 20, he said, go, uh, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers. I mean, listen to what he calls us. This is so good. This is even bigger than this, this text at the moment. He calls us brothers and sisters. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And he commissions Mary of Magdala to go and preach the resurrection of Jesus to the 11 apostles who were probably still hiding somewhere. That's what happened. Okay, one more cross-reference. I'm going to Romans 16. Look at that. We're right on course. We're going to Romans 16, um, Acts, and then the book of Romans. So you're flipping to the right. The very last chapter of Romans, I would probably say to you, I'm, but this is total truth, I am like scared to preach through the book of Romans. This is like high theology. This is the ultimate bedrock in some ways where the Apostle Paul puts together Genesis to Revelation, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the reality of Christ in us. I mean, the book of Romans is where you go when you're trying to understand this thing called Christian faith, Okay. So Paul writes this, and he sends it as a letter to the church in Rome. Okay, pick up with me. Romans 16, verse 1. I commend to you our sister, Phoebe, a deacon. Now, the Bible is the inspired word of God, the infallible word of God in original text. Deacon right here is servant in Greek. Paul uses it all the time to reference the male counterparts that he does ministry with. Just a note. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon or a servant of the church in Sencrea. That's right off of Corinth. Now remember, we were just talking about Paul preaching in Corinth. Verse 2. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. 
Now, Paul, this is what almost all commentators would agree on this. Not everyone, but almost all would agree that Paul finishes this letter. He's sending his personal and final greeting right here. Then he rolls up that little scroll and he hands it to Phoebe to deliver it. Okay, that's what he's saying here. Uh, He hands it to Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people. Now, if that's the truth, if, if that's the case, what is Phoebe carrying with her? The epistle to the church in Rome. Okay. <clears throat> so she is carrying it with her. So he's saying, as she's carrying this scroll, that my epistle, receive her in a way worthy of his people and give her any help she may need from you for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Verse three, greet Priscilla. There's our Priscilla again and Aquila, my co-workers. My subordinate Women that I demand be quiet. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risk their lives for me. Not only I, but the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets in their house. Where does that church meet? In the house of Priscilla and Aquila. It's like they're pastoring the church. Okay, now, if Phoebe carried Romans, Paul finishes writing it, rolls it up, seals it, ties it, puts it in a bag, hands it to Phoebe. Phoebe carries the epistle of Romans carefully, ever so carefully, to Rome. She gets to the church in Rome. The church in Rome gathers. And who stands up to read the scroll? Phoebe. I mean, only someone who is representing the apostle Paul is going to read his letter. He, she was with him. So she shows up, she would have carried it, she would have unrolled it, she would have read it. Now, if the church, let's just pretend Phoebe's up here and she's reading the scroll, this huge thing of Romans. If they had a question, who would they ask? Phoebe. Okay, this is really hard. Paul said women, he doesn't permit women to teach. We've got uh, Priscilla, who is at least instructing Apollos with her husband, Aquila. Now we have Phoebe, who is carrying a letter of Romans. So if people had questions about it, they're asking her, now what is Phoebe doing? Teaching. So like it it, it creates this rub. She's essentially carrying, and she probably would have carried it to more churches than just Rome because these letters were passed around. Okay, back to our first Timothy text. I know this is a lot. It's worth it though. It's worth it. Back to our first Timothy text. 1 Timothy 2, 11. Let's start here. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, let's back up from the text and let's go. Who wrote the book of Timothy? Paul. He wrote it to who? Pastor Timothy. Pastor Timothy is a church is the pastor, almost assuredly, of the church in Ephesus. Okay, now Ephesus. What do we know about Ephesus? And and let me, before I even open up, what do we know about Ephesus? This passage has been the hinge pin of those who have denied women a place in ordained ministry in the church. Preaching, communion, leadership, eldership, being pastors. In fact, if you really read this whole passage, it almost is like women are second-class citizens. 
And I've wrestled with this. Like, how do I sort this? So let's take a step back. So the epistle of Timothy was written by Paul to Timothy, a very young pastor in this city of Ephesus. Now, in Ephesus, the main religion, the biggest temple, the most famous shrine was a female-only cult called the Temple of Artemis. That's her Greek name. The Roman name is Diana or, or, or Diana. Um, but so, so there is this massive structure, and it is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The cult of Artemis, the building in which they met. Now, if you have a female deity, the cult of Artemis, the cult of Diana, um, and uh, what type of priests do you think you have there? All female. There are no male priests in the cult of Artemis. There are no male priests that serve in that, in that um, cult, in that building in Ephesus. Now, if the most high holy building in the entire city of Ephesus is this temple of um, Diana or this temple of Artemis, and if, if all of the priests are only female, then uh, the greatest influence in the city of Ephesus is what? Female. So essentially you have an entire city where females run the show and they keep it that way. And anytime a man steps up, what do you think happens? Nope. So if you're now the Apostle Paul and you've sent a very young pastor named Timothy to this city of Ephesus and you have a brand new fledgling, like, and I hate the word religion, but I've got to use it here. You have this brand new fledgling religion where it's going from Judaism to larger sort of the universal understanding we have of Christianity. And he has sent, and in fact, he says in one of the Timothy letters, do not let anyone look down on you because you are young. So we know he is young. So you have a fledgling young church that is floundering and struggling and trying to grow. You have a fledgling young pastor who is a little bit insecure and unsure. And all of a sudden, it's sitting in this city that is ruled in many ways and is under the dominance of the cult of Artemis and the perhaps up to a thousand female priests that are leading therein. And then all of a sudden, let's say, this is total conjecture, Michael Mattis conjecture outside of scripture, but let's say that one of the priests of the temple to Artemis decides that this guy Timothy and the followers of the way or the followers of Jesus are actually teaching the truth and one of the priestesses actually gives their heart and life to King Jesus and then they come into the church, what would that priestess probably immediately begin to do? Take charge. Take control. That's what she's been trained to do. So now you put in context what is happening here in 1 Timothy, verse 2, chapter 8 through 12, and you can begin to get a better understanding of why the Apostle Paul, who seemed to say one thing here, but yet endorses another thing with Priscilla, and Jesus, who endorses something with Mary of Magdala, and then uh, you get uh, Paul, who clearly endorses something else with Phoebe. It's like, are these contradictory? And I would go, okay, here is where case-specific understanding of who wrote the the letter, who is it to, and what church and what city is it being directed to plays a vital role. You follow me? Okay, there's a couple more things. I would say here that Paul seems to be hedging his writing to keep people from thinking that women should be trained up so that Christianity would gradually become a cult like that of Artemis. That's what's happening here, in my opinion, in this 
text. So he seems to have the overtones of keeping women from being um, bossy or seizing control. And it actually looks to me like what Jesus says in Luke 10, 39. I did not put that up here, but you have Mary and Martha. You have Mary sitting at Jesus' feet in Luke 10, 39, and she is learning. And she is like listening to Jesus like a rabbinic student would do. So it seems to me that what Paul is saying here is that women must have the space and leisure to study and learn in their own way. Not that they would muscle in and take over leadership as in the Artemis cult, but rather that men and women alike could develop and learn whatever gifts and teaching and leadership God has given them. Now, pause just a second. 20, I don't know, this is probably a little bit dated now, maybe 2005 America. Um, the stereotype was, let's say, that men are macho, loudmouth, arrogant thugs, always fighting and wanting their own way. Can I say that? That stereotype, just 2005 America, 1999 America, Fight Club, when did that come out? Late 90s? I mean, yeah, it's like, okay. And then the, the, the converse of that stereotype is women are like coy, empty-headed creatures who aren't thinking about anything except clothes and jewelry. Okay? I'm just being like, yeah, okay, there's some of that exists. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just saying. So now there are Christian versions of these stereotypes. Men must make the decisions and run the show and always be in the lead and telling everyone what to do. And women must stay home and bring, bring up the children. And it feels like that's what Paul is saying here. Now... I want to read verse 12 again, and then I want to read to you a translation of verse 12 that someone offers. 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, there's a guy um, named David Schuler who's no longer alive, um, and there's another guy named N.T. Wright um, who is still alive, but they have a version of this that they pitched from the original Greek, now remember, the Bible is the inherent or the inspired word of God in its original form. So this is their version. This is beyond Michael's scholarship, but this is their version of that verse. And here's what they said. I don't mean to imply that I'm now setting up women as the new authority over men in the same way that previously men held authority over women. I'm going to read that to you again. I do not mean to imply that I'm now setting up women as the new authority over men in the same way that previously men held authority over women. Now, I'm going to pause that. I'm going to go down. Um, let, me, let me wrestle this with you, and I'm almost, I'm almost done here. I want to read 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 12, and then I want to read David Schuler and N.T. Wright's translation of the same text. Are you ready? And then we're going to end. 1 Timothy 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. He's busting the stereotype, by the way. Like we had a macho stereotype, Paul's beginning to bust the stereotype because men don't do that in Ephesus. All right, verse 9. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. What's he what stereotype is he busting in Ephesus? Cult of Artemis. Okay, verse 10, but with good deeds um, appropriate for women who profess the worship of God. Verse 11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not the one uh, deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, 
David Schuler and N.T. Wright propose a, a translation from the original Greek on this text. So, this is what I want. The men should pray in every place, lifting up holy hands with no anger or disputing. Again, breaking the stereotype that existed in Ephesus. Verse 9. In the same way, women too should clothe themselves in appropriate manner, modestly and sensibly. They should not go for elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, breaking the stereotype of Artemis, okay? Verse 10, instead, as inappropriate for women who profess to be godly, they should adorn themselves with good works. He's not saying don't dress beautifully or get your hair or your nails done. He's just saying adorn yourself primarily with good works. Verse 11, they must be allowed to study undisturbed in full submission to God. Love that translation. He's inviting women to study. Verse 12, I'm not saying that women should teach men or try to dictate to them, but I am saying that they should be left undisturbed to learn. Verse 13, Adam was created first, you see, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and fell into trespass. Verse 15, she will, however, be kept safe through the process of childbirth if if she continues in faith, love, and holiness with prudence. Now, when you look at 1 Timothy 2.12, you could say a woman should never stand up on the stage and teach men or a mixed audience. You get people like Beth Moore teaching all women and Joyce Meyer teaching all women. I love to listen to both of them, by the way. But when I step back and look at the canon of scripture, and when I begin to juxtapose who Paul is writing to in 1 Timothy 2, understanding the church, understanding the cult of, the cult of Artemis, when I lay in there Phoebe and how Paul empowered Phoebe to be a carrier and teacher, the book of Romans. And then when I layer in how Jesus handled Mary of Magdala and how Jesus handled Mary, the sister of Martha. And I could even go back to the Old Testament. We could dig through there. But when I look at the larger canon of scripture, what I see is that God is a God calling women into positions of leadership, calling women to write, to preach, to share, to stand on stages, perhaps to pastor, to be elders. When I look at the canon of scripture, this is what I see. And I don't think for a minute that Paul is contradicting himself. He's dealing with a very specific case and point. Now, if you're willing, I want to do something. You know me. This is a challenge by choice moment. So that means if you don't want to be challenged, you can choose not to. It's okay. But if you're a female in the room, I would love to invite you to stand just for a moment. Challenge by choice. If you're a female in the room, I'd love you to stand. If you don't want to stand, no problem. You can sit. With all sobriety and seriousness, women of Saltbox, online and in person, I would like to look you in the eyes and say, if someone or someone's either intentionally or unintentionally has sat on you or pushed you down and said, you can't speak, you can't write, you can't teach, you can't learn, you can't be a student of theology. I wanna ask your forgiveness on behalf of a pastor 
and of the larger church. In the quietness of your heart, would you forgive me as a representative of the larger body of Christ? The second thing that I want to do is I want to pray for you, and then we're going to close with a final song. So bow your head if you'd like, lift a hand if you'd like. But Father, I pray for every woman that is under the sound of my voice in this room and online, both now and listening in her ears. And Father, I pray that you would anoint these women to lead. I pray you'd anoint them to be students of the gospel of King Jesus. I pray you'd anoint them to be theologians. I pray you'd anoint them to learn, to sit at your feet by Mary, like Mary, the sister of Martha. I pray that they could be servants like Phoebe, that they could be preachers of the gospel like Mary of Magdala, that they could help others learn the most accurate way like Priscilla. Father, I pray that you would call forth from this congregation and congregations around the world women who proclaim the word of God fearlessly, women who write and speak and lead and pastor and elder. Father, I pray that you would anoint and call forth these women in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come up and gather around here. We are going to close in a song. If the rest of you men would stand with us, we are going to worship the Lord together. If you want special prayer, you may come up. If you've never given your life to this Jesus, we would love to pray with you up here. Somebody's going to lead us in a closing song, and then I'll pray us out. Talk.